Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Born in the Barossa Valley, Dylan Grigg started out pruning vineyards to earn some money and has gone on to become one of the leading viticultural consultants in the world, with a PhD and stacks of tractor hours to prove it. Listen to us chat about different training systems, the character of old vines, epigenetic adaptation, organics, carbohydrate storage, and what it's like studying and working with truly historic vineyards. Hey Dylan, how are you? I'm good, Tim. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Um, nice to talk, talking to you. And you're where at the moment? You're in Australia, I think, aren't you? I am in Australia. I'm in South Australia, so the Adelaide Hills, where it is uh, springtime. Oh, how lovely. So what, flowering in the vineyards? The Some of the warmer regions, yes, are just starting flowering, but we have a very late season at the moment because it's been quite wet. Uh, and cool? It has been cool and cloudy, so um, a lot of the shoots are shorter than we would expect at this time of year. Yeah, so much for global warming then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. D- d- tell us a little bit about your background, because you're a Barossa Valley boy, you were brought up in the town of Lindock. Was wine part of your life growing up? I mean, vineyards are all around you if you live there, aren't they? Yeah, correct. I mean, I grew up um, riding my bike to school past vineyards and playing in and around vineyards. As a kid, my um, family didn't have any vineyards. We've been in the Barossa Valley, so we've got connections back to the 1800s and the Grosses. Um, from Grunenberg came out. But my family, the closest we got is we actually had the local German bakehouse. Because people don't know that about the Bross. It's very Germanic, isn't it? You know, they've, you have umpar bands sometimes and, and schnitzel and all sorts of things. Oh, com- completely. No, there's a really uh, there's a really rich German history and it was settled by um, Silesian migrants. But no, I didn't, I didn't um, grow up... In deep in the wine industry, other than being completely immersed in it, because everything works on the viticultural calendar in the Barossa. So when it's summer, everyone's working hard and picking, and when it's winter, everyone's pruning. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you got a job talking of pruning in the local vineyard, didn't you? When you finished high school, you were the only employee of a small estate. Was that what got you interested in viticulture? Yeah, it was. Well, actually, at high school, I didn't do, you know, I did tech studies and PE. I think I did golf in year 12. I I didn't have ambition of going to university. I was one of those really hands-on sort of people, always want to fix things and build things. So when I left um, school, I actually studied to be an apprentice chef, and I got three years through an apprenticeship, and the pay was crap and the hours were worse, so I quit it. And what job do you get in June in the Barossa Valley when you're a teenager? Pruning. So that that's it. kind of how I fell into working in vineyards. Yeah. And, and then you went on to do a BA in, in viticulture, Adelaide University, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. So I, um, what I did was I, I started working in the small vineyard and then from there I worked for a larger company. In the 1990s, there was a big expansion in Australia and in the Bross Valley. And I had a good job and worked my way up quickly from 
just the tractor driver, labourer to being um, vineyard hand, assistant manager, manager. And by that stage, I was managing vineyards in the Adelaide Hills and I had questions that my boss couldn't answer. And he said, oh, I think you need to find a mentor or maybe do some more study. So they were keen for me to sign up and do the part-time seven years and keep working. But I'm a bit more of the type of person that if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it full on. So I went, picked up the books and did the uh, mature age entry and I did my BA as a mature age student. How old were you then? Oh, 20, 22. Oh, it sounds young to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, but luckily uh, because I didn't, I didn't do any of the subjects that would get me into uni in high school, so I had to go the other way around and wait until I was old enough to be able to apply for the mature age entry, um, at which point I had to sit, a, sit an exam, which I studied like buggery four, um, sat the exam, passed, got accepted into viticulture, and then, boy, the, the learning curve. Uh, I didn't do um, chemistry, statistics, maths. Uh, I didn't do any of these subjects in year 12. So we sat down in the lecture theatre in, the, in the first week and it's all of, all of the undergrads are together at this stage. There's hundreds of students. The lecturer gets up there and goes, all of you that did year 12 chemistry, you might find the first two weeks a bore because we're going to recap year 12 chemistry in two weeks. I'm like, what? I didn't even do it year 11, let alone year 12. <laughs> Tell us a little bit. You talk a lot about tractor hours. I mean, it, the, the tractor hours covers walking through vineyards as well, obviously. I just wonder in your career how much you've learned from, from observation, especially during those early days, but what you've done since, as opposed to the reading and studying and, and the academic stuff you've done. I think, like I said <clears throat> at the beginning, is I'm very hands-on person and um, I think I've got good observational skills and I like problem solving. So when I talk about tractor hours, um, I worked, when I first started pruning, you know, the pruning machine, we had this uh, air compressor and air snips. The pruning machine wouldn't work, so the workers would stand around and be like, oh, pruning machine doesn't work, right? Cool. We'll just rub our hands together. I'm like, ah, oh, fuck at that. Let's yeah, just take the air filter off, pop the spark plug out, just check the gap, clean it, and get it running. And it did, you know. So I was always a bit, a bit yeah. like that. Yeah. And then um, when I worked for the larger company, um, I was, you know, I was still a teenager. They drove me to the tractor dealership and said, "Here's a brand new tractor. Here's a brand new couple of brand new implements. Here's your timesheet. Go for it." So I used to drink. Drink Red Bull, <laughs> drink Red Bull, and eat hot dogs, and drive the tractor for a ridiculous number of hours. <laughs> so it has been useful, in other words. Yeah, it has been very useful, and also, you know, I, I now have a PhD in consult. But um, if I'm out there with someone, I've done all of the things that I ask people to do, pretty much. Yeah. So when it comes to tying knots or planting vines or um, fixing wires or any of those things, I know how it works. From the from the ground up, basically. I mean, I mean, after you graduated, you went to New Zealand, didn't you, to work for Man of War on, on Waiheke Island, close yes. to Auckland, lovely vineyards. Was that your first kind of encounter with cool climate viticulture? Because I mean, there was bits of it in, in parts of the Barossa, obviously. But yeah, well, I mean, I was I was based in the Barossa, but the company that I worked for had vineyards in the Adelaide Hills. Okay. And the Adelaide Hills guys were like, oh, we don't want to work there because you've got to, you know, spray more often and there's more weeds and there's VSP. Because it's wet. Yeah. It's it's yeah. yeah. So um, I, uh, I took on that job 
And then when I stopped and went to university, I was working for an, a consultant and working on projects throughout the Adelaide Hills, which are cool climate. So Pinot, Chardonnay, Sav Blanc, these sorts of things. And then when I went to, after uni, went over to Man of War, um, I think that was warmer climate because it's surrounded by the Hauraki Gulf. So uh. there's always a large body of water around. So I remember it was the first time that we pruned all year in T-shirts. Like I had a year-round farmer's wow. tent. Because it's a special microclimate, isn't it? I mean, they grow Syrah. Yeah, yeah, they grow Syrah and Cabernet and and these things. Um, I mean, it was a great place to learn as well because they were very, very well funded. Um, so it was kind of seen as a bit of an experiment. So they had blocks planted on every aspect, every orientation, and they had a range of varieties, some that they knew wouldn't work. Um, I think the Gewurz Tremina, for one, it just wouldn't set fruit. So they try and try and go, no, that doesn't work, pull it out. What does work, we put it in. So <laughs> Give it in. It, it was great. It was great to see that experimentation and um, some of those little uh, track machines that we were using over there. Like it was really steep and pretty challenging viticulture. There was a labour force that would be um, would be brought out from Auckland on a little on a little boat, and even we'd go and pick grapes on another island, and we'd jump on a catamaran to go over there and transport all the workers around. Put all the fruit on a barge and push it back to the winery. I mean, that's a pretty unique place to work. Listen, you went back to Australia, set up your own business, Meristem Viticulture, you've still got, 2008. I mean, how many people do you work with around the world now? And how do you find them? Do they find you or do you find Um, them? People generally find me, or you know what the wine world's like, is um, any time, my wife's now very, very used to it, um, she was also from the Brosser, so she knew a little bit about um, how the wine world worked. But, you know, the moment she's like, we're going on a holiday to this town or this city, I'm like, right, where's, where's the map? Where's the wine region? And you look for contacts. You can couch surf your way around the whole world through <laughs> contacts and relationships. Yeah. So um, whenever we'd go and travel, I'd always try and get out to vineyards to see see how things are done and learn and talk to people. And through... Just um, some of those meetings, people like, oh, wow, I really like the way you think. Perhaps um, we could work together. That's how I, partly how I ended up in um, Catalonia. But to answer your question, I think if I look at my whiteboard, there's around 20 contacts. And how many are in Australia? Oh, out of those, the majority majority are in Australia. I have a I have a little bit in Italy and a couple on either on either side of Spain, um, and I also collaborate with another viticulturist in South Africa. Interesting. So it it keeps it keeps me busy, especially when um, we're in pruning here and in Spain they're starting their spring and starting um, all of those operations to be yeah. in two places at once. Yeah, no, it's, it, you've got to do it. Thank goodness for Zoom, I suppose. Oh, WhatsApp as well. WhatsApp, yeah. <laughs> Tell us a bit more about about organics because you, you say you strongly encourage it and you practice it wherever, if you can, yeah? Mm-hmm. Just how you'd explain the differences between organics, what organics gives you in a vineyard, and yeah. conventional agriculture. Maybe just say a little bit, I know it's a big question, about biodynamics as well because you're a PhD. You mm-hmm. know, how you regard those three different different ways of working in a vineyard. I mean, they're, they're related in some ways, I suppose. Yeah, sure. So I guess if I, you know, to structure the answer and say conventional viticulture is 
best practice using all the tools that we've got and modern science and modern technology, which includes um, applications for fungicides, pesticides, herbicides, you know, technology that um, makes growing things easier because it's easy just to drive past and spray the weeds and they die. But mm. there are certain ramifications to some of those decisions which um, people that practice organics aren't happy with, which is why there are certifying bodies which say what you can and can't use in organics. So in organics, the main difference is, is that you can use products and formulations that are found in nature. So they need to be naturally derived. So when we talk about spraying for mildews, in organic scenarios, we've got um, plant-based extracts, um, plant-based oils. We've got copper, which is found, I mean, yes, it's a heavy metal, but it's found in a rock. And we've got sulfur, which is also can be mined. Whereas conventional, we've got all sorts of synthetic um, chemicals and products, some that get inside the plant and are very, very effective at doing their job, but they also have um, other impacts um, off target and to people um, and the environment. So yeah. if we take another step to biodynamics, um, that's really a, it's really a branch of organics where there's um, they stick to a set of rules or a set of ideas created by Rudolf Steiner and they do use the lunar cycles and astrology in their farming. So um, organics is using organic-based materials, but you don't have to stick to anything based on a, on a calendar, whereas biodynamics, it's really calendar-based and it's based on the lunar calendar and, and astronomy. So there's certain preparations and certain applications that are done at strict times of the year. So it makes sure that... Um, that you get out there and these people do these things. And have you worked with, with biodynamics anywhere? Yeah, I mean, I've got, if I look at my client lists now, it's probably, you know, it'd be 98, high 90s percent organic. Um, not all of those are certified because that's another kettle of fish to go down that track and certify, but most of them want to do it and, and I support and help them in that. And I do have... I do have a couple of clients that are biodynamic, but biodynamic um, practitioners or, or vineyards are usually pretty self-sustaining and they'll have a specific, um, maybe a biodynamic. They're following the calendar order. Oh, that's interesting as well, yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Mac Forbes because you lived in the Yarra Valley for a bit in Victoria. Mm -hmm. I mean... Mac, amazing guy, and I love his wines. And I think his contribution to not just the Victorian wine scene, but the Australian wine scene was really important and still is. How did you work with him? I mean, how did you kind of dovetail so well with Mac? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we, we're still great mates and I still I still work, I'm still in the business, helping him in the Yarra Valley and with the vineyards in Tasmania. So um, the, way, the way that we met was actually funny. When I came back from New Zealand, we landed in Melbourne and my wife, I took us to New Zealand. So she's like, all right, I've got a job in Melbourne. I, I started cold calling people to get a, get some work in the Yarra Valley. And I started working at this winery called Sticks. And at the time, <laughs> um, the boss of Sticks was like, oh, you've got to come to this this shed. We rent, we rent out this little space in the winery and meet this guy. He's really doing some interesting things. Dylan, meet Matt. This is Matt Forbes. 
I'm like, oh, okay, mate. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and, and, and I would, um, you know, I'd be working in that winery and it was a oh, 1,500 tonne, like it was a big winery. And I was seeing lots of vineyards and I'd always walk past and see what Mac was doing and talk. And we really kind of hit it off. And then he he sent me a message one day and said, what's your last name? And I'm like, man, that's a weird question. And then I tell him. And then a few minutes later, a, a letter comes through with an employment offer. <laughs> and he's like, Can you, do you want to come on board and be the viticulturalist? And I'm like, dude, you've offered me three days a week and you've got no vineyards. How's it going to work? But, you know, he's pretty visionary. So he's like, no, I just want you to support the growers we've got. Yeah. And the other two days a week, just go consulting. And I'm like, and you did. Oh, that's it. Easy. You know, yeah. I've worked as a junior consultant previously, but, you know, I didn't, I felt like consultants were all, you know, really old with heaps of experience. And he's like, no, you, you get on well with people. You, I think you'll do all right. And so I started working for him, started consulting to a few other vineyards around. And then in the end, I was full time with Mac consulting maybe one day a week, managing five or seven vineyards in the Yarra. So it was busy times. Tell us a bit about your PhD, because I mean, I know lots of people listening to this podcast will be interested in the subject of old vines and you did your PhD in old vines. Where did you focus uh, and where were the vineyards? Were they all Barossa based or what? Yeah, so that's, it's a good question because in terms of old vines and the stock of old vines that are available globally, the Barossa Valley actually has has a, large, a very large number of old vines still on their own roots. So yeah. the Barossa, if you don't know, or South Australia in the whole, doesn't have phylloxera. So we've actually got pre-phylloxera vines dating back to the mid-1800s. Which are very unusual, has to be said, yeah? Which is, which is very unusual that they've survived and survived in quite large numbers. Um, so we've got the oldest, or there is the oldest uh, Syrah or Shiraz, Grenache, Mataro, um, Cabernet, uh, Semillon, all in the Barossa because they were planted in the 1800s. They came out very early and they persisted. So to do a scientific study, what we did was we tried to find old vines, but then young vines that had been taken from the same genetic material, so from the same vine and planted nearby. Now, in the Barossa, that's a pretty common thing to have your old block, take cuttings and propagate and plant next to it on the same soil with the same management, your young vines. Yeah. So there was a lot of opportunities to do that in the Barossa. So had to filter through the sites that were um, the most typical and the closest in terms of management and soil and health and all that between old and young. And then we basically followed the old vines and the young vines for three years, measuring everything from shoot growth and plant physiology to um, grape chemistry. We made small batch wines. We looked at the flavours, aromas, chemistry, and even the genetics and epigenetics to compare them, which you couldn't really do that in many other places of the world um, to find something that was set up that well. I mean, it, it wasn't perfect, but we had to start somewhere and this whole discussion of old vines is just so much leaning on the counter hearsay yeah. that it, it was good. <laughs> and, yeah. 
you know, it was good. And when I went and talked to my supervisor when we moved from Melbourne back to Adelaide in the Adelaide Hills, I said, I don't want to do a PhD on one specific thing and be an expert in a protein. So when this project was pitched, I was like, yep, perfect. I mean, it was a nightmare. I had five supervisors and there's seven chapters and so many disciplines and collaborators. You've got a distinction, so you must have done a good job, right? Yeah, I mean, I I read really widely and sunk right into it. I still kept consulting while I was doing it, but it really captured my imagination. I've met heaps of great people around the world from – from that project and studying and hopefully advanced our knowledge so that if someone else wants to pick it up and run with it, there's a, some baseline material. It's, it's interesting, this definition of old, isn't it? Because there's no definition. You see things on labels in France saying vieille vigne, you know, and it could be 25 years old. And South Africa, you know, is doing very well with the old vine project. Mm-hmm. Their minimum there is, is only 35 years old, which, as you said, by by the sands of Barossa or parts of Spain would be a young vine, really. Do you think we need a definition of what is an old vine? Could you come up with one in terms of age? I think we do need a definition. And, you know, my loose definition is kind of um, the working life of somebody. You know, if if you're out there, if you plant the vineyard and you work on it and then you retire, maybe it's 45, 50 plus years. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because, you know, 35 years... I don't think is that old. I mean, I've no. been in the wine industry, well, it'll be coming on 25. Um, and in the scale of how old these plants can grow, that is a fraction of their age. And also if we're, if we're saying or, or if we're proposing that old vines have these inherent qualities, at what age does that kick in? What do you think? At what age does it kick in? I think it's got, I think it's got to be – I think it starts – maybe in the late 30s. Yeah. So it's got to be in the 30s, but it's got to be 50, 60 plus. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, they've got some character. I mean, you posed this question, I think, in, a, in a, a paper that you gave in Spain, where you said, are vines good because they're old or old because they're good? I mean, mm-hmm. is it a bit of both? I think it's got to be, it's got to be a, bit of a, a bit of both. And if we use, um, I know the Barossa very well, and there's some areas in Spain where it fits also, but... You've got to have a vineyard that's productive with the peaks and troughs of um, not only the environment but fashion and winery demand cycles and economic cycles and in some parts of the world um, conflict and war. So for a vineyard to survive those things, it's got to be planted in the right site. So it probably was good to begin with. So out of the five sites, just quickly, out of the five sites that I had in my um, PhD, which include um, Hill of Grace and the Freedom Vineyard in Langmile, um, these all five of these sites had a small stream within one straight football kick. So back in the 1800s when they were planted, uh, Prujenski told me there's a German word for it um, or a phrase for carrying a bucket of water to the vines to keep them going. So all of these vineyards were close to water, so that probably helped them survive, whereas there may have been vineyards planted nearby or with different soils, but they just didn't make it through. So they were probably good to begin with, and, you know, now they've continued to produce good quality fruit and not die. So they're um, they're now well-respected and looked after and valued. Yeah, so, so- 
chance in a way. Well, I mean, foresight in that they planted it near, near a stream, but yeah. also a little bit of chance that they suddenly realised, hey, you know, the vines need, need water. Oh, and loads of chance too. I mean, you, yeah. I was when I was in Madrid, there was a talk about the about old vines and growing vines to be old. Mm. So, which at the moment, you know, we talked about a little bit about the conventional and organic, you know, conventional viticulture. In conventional viticulture, often vineyards are becoming unproductive in their twenties. So then, what happens is you pull them out and plant a new one, so it is productive and they remain youthful. So they're not managed to be old, whereas the vineyards in the Barossa, they were planted with, and other parts of the world, of course, were planted with a, a true love, passion and desire. This had to work. This is their one shot. So they looked after it. And <laughs> when I was in Madrid, there was a, apart from that talk, there was a talk on the age of the vines. And I was blown away by how many tens of thousands of hectares of vineyards are like over 65 years old. That's amazing. And, and why is that? Partly it is luck because um, maybe where they are planted, but it's also luck because of the training method. So bush vines, when you prune them, if you prune them well, you don't prune with big cuts. So you're always allowing them to occupy a larger space. They're planted on a wide plantation so that they've got a lot of space to occupy so you don't have to get the chainsaw out so you can fit the tractor through. Whereas you look at vineyards that are pruned in Guyot fashion, um, they have a lot of large cuts just around the crown and they end up getting wood disease. And we're learning a lot more about pruning at the moment. Um, there's a renewed interest in it. But if you look at the oldest vines, they're often mataros and grenaches and things that, um, that are very short pruning. I was going so, to ask you about that. I mean, are, are there certain varieties that age more gracefully than others, you know, that are more susceptible to, to becoming old, if you like? I think the varieties that don't need to rely on a post or a wire or a, or a trellis. You think of, you think of Shiraz or Syrah, um, it's really floppy. It's the, the word is pendulous. It kind of flops and hangs around, same as muscats, like muskets are the same. So to have a very old vine of that, it needs to grow short shoots or it needs to have some support or it will kind of fall apart or maybe get driven over or have disease and then not be good and pulled out. Whereas vines that grow erect like um, Mataro or um, Grenache, for example, um, they grow upright, so they're able to be pruned quite short and they're erect. So if you prune them well, they can form a trunk and be somewhat self-supporting so they can outlive. They don't need to outlive a trellis because they never had one to begin with. Do you, you talk sometimes about finding the right site? You've mentioned it already today. I just think, do you think that the finding the right site has become more scientific now. I mean, I think in the old days, people just looked at a slope and said, oh, yeah, I think that might work. Um, yeah. you know, or, or is there still, to that degree, a, a, is there still a degree of emotion when you go to a vineyard? And I mean, Michael Hill Smith told me a few weeks ago, he said he saw this vineyard in Tasmania and he said, I know that's a good site, you know, within 20 seconds of looking at it. Do you still get that sometimes where you don't need the science to back it up? You just get a sense of what a great vineyard it could be. I think yes, completely. I, I had a, a client call me once and he said, mate, I've got this vineyard. I don't know. You might tell me to pull it out. Could be, he talked like this um, really quick. Could be rubbish, but come out and have a look. And I got out the car and was like, mate, this is great. You could just feel it. I mean, Mac Forbes is a classic. He's planted down in, in Tasmania on a slope that's steep and facing the wrong direction, but, you know, he got the feeling in his bones. Um, I think in the new world, 
we can plant anywhere we want and we can plant whatever we want. So in the old world, they've had been fortunate enough to have generations or since antiquity to select the best sites, the best varieties, all of these things, which now um, with appellations and things, it's kind of, it, it may be a bit of an Achilles, but here we don't have that. So I think we have to use our own experience, which might only be a few generations old and go, I think that this will be a great site. But then I also think that we've got the technology. So instead of just throwing a dart at the wall, we can run some um, scientific filters over a site and actually have a dartboard and go, right, what do you want to plant here? And they go, oh, this is going to be a great site for, let's just say, Nebbiolo. Oh, okay. Well, let's just have a look at a few of the other Nebbiolo vineyards around, or if there's none around, like Michael Smith in Tasmania, um, you look at them on the mainland and you compare the attributes of site A and site B and see if they're even within QE. So you might plant something that's just never going to ripen. So and that would be crazy. Expensive. That would be crazy. You, yeah. you know, it's an expensive mistake, isn't it? Exactly. But people do it. People do it often. Or, or they say, oh, I think this is going to be great for this variety. And we go, all right, well, let's have a look and do an analysis on the solar radiation and the elevation and the number of frost days um, just so that we can use those tools or that knowledge to give us the power to make a good decision on where to put the vineyard or how high up a slope or the row orientation. So I think there's, with all almost all facets of winemaking and viticulture, there's some art, but you know, you're talking to a, a PhD, it's got to be underpinned. There's got to be some science as well. Underpinned <laughs> by science. But don't, we can't forget that science is only as current as the latest research. And by definition, it's it's always out to be proven. Um, well, not incorrect, but there's always improvements to knowledge to be made. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, t tell me something about, because you mentioned this earlier, epigenetic adaptation. Um can you tell us a bit more about it? Because it's how kind of how a vine adapts to its environment. Would that be a, a, a simplistic way of putting it? I think that yeah, it's it's simplistic, but it's it's accurate. I mean, plants. We all all living beings have epigenetic, which epi means above, so above genetic modifications. Which plants, being sessile, as in they cannot move, um, they have a lot of uh, epigenetic modifications or um, they use they use epigenetic tools to modify their gene expression to suit a certain environment. So, for example, um, if a plant is growing in a very salty situation and if the exact same plant is growing in a situation without salt, they'll have different epigenetic profiles and one can grow with the high salt levels because it's epigenetic has epigenetics have shifted a little bit, but the underlying genome is exactly the same. So it's almost like the vine's thinking, is it? Well, it's, it is. It's, ad it's adapting and it's kind of, I to explain it simplistically, I say it's kind of like the dog ears on a page of a book. So your book, if the book is the genome, so that's the variety, let's just call it um, Grenache because I always talk about that. <laughs> the genome is the book. And the whole field is planted with the same the same book. And if that vine is planted a long time ago, say in the 1900s, and, the, and it grows, no problem. It's getting used to its site, where the sun comes up, where the sun goes down, where the prevailing winds come from, um, how long winter is, 
And then in the 20s, 20 years later, it has a really heavy drought. It remembers the drought because plants, it's been proven with grapevines that if they're exposed to a stress, the next time that they're exposed to that same stress, they will stress less. And in the lab, that's been shown to be measurable by the epigenetic profile of the vines. Interesting. So it's kind of like they dog ear that DNA and go, right, let's stress less because I remember back in the 20s when we had that real period with no water. Um, so we're just going to chill through this drought in the 80s. Whereas young vines, a juvenile, they're like a puppy and just running all day. They're like, we need to get our seeds ripe, we need to get sugar, we need red berries to give it to the birds to spread. It's experience, basically, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And and we're learning, we've got a lot to learn and we're learning a lot more about it. How does this work, I wonder, with we're living in this warming world, you know, drought, heat, climate change. Mm. Um Old vines seem to seem to function better. I've seen that in Spain this year, that people with older vines said they were less stressed. Is that established root systems? Is it carbohydrate storage? Is it is it de- different muscle selections? Is it this, you know, epigenetic adaptation? I suppose it's a bit of everything. Is it what you're saying? I think it's a bit of, a bit of column A, B and C. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, looking at my PhD, one of the things that came up was what is different with old vines is they've got this larger permanent structure of um, – of carbohydrates to draw from and um, there's some other studies that have come out that have shown a similar thing when the vines first burst in springtime they use that carbohydrate store to grow and if they don't have a large if they don't have a large reserve um, they can deplete it quicker so having a bigger buffer i think definitely helps and old vines do do often um, iron out the ups and downs um, of seasonal variation quite well. Sure, some of it's to do with root area, maybe not the um, the exploited area, but as roots as roots grow, they build um, their permanent framework will increase, which will also store carbohydrates. While the feeder roots turn over each year, the main root structure will actually thicken over time. So the plant body will be bigger. Um, epigenetics, I think, does come into it also because um, one thing I found when I was studying in my PhD was that we would look at the same. We looked. I tested the genetics of all of the vines, which were all Shiraz. So on a plot, they were all like bang right in exactly the same spot. So identical genetic, um, identical uh, genetic <laughs> markers. Let's say. And when I looked at them individually, each vineyard had its own little nuance of having um, having different genetic markers. But then when I looked at the epigenetics, um, they really were divergent between what was the Eden Valley, which is higher and cooler, and the valley floor, which was warmer. So even though they were all Shiraz and they were all genetically pretty much identical, when we did this epigenetic um tests or analysis we saw them separate into these two classes of vines which were from different growing regions and that also translated into some of the um uh quercetin and camphorol some of the some of the flavor and aroma compounds were also different that we could see between the cool climate and warm climate which you would come to expect 
Yeah, fascinating. You're also a you know a, a wine producer, aren't you? You've got a little vineyard in Vine Vale in the Barossa Valley. Yeah, I, I just wonder, you know, if you're actually got skin in the game in a sense. Does mm-hmm. it give you a different perspective on what you do when you're thinking, hey, you know, I've got to make this stuff as well, not just consult to other people? Oh yeah, make it and sell it. I mean, I haven't had a vineyard for long, but having having skin in the game was something that we didn't see we didn't see coming up. But then when the opportunity to take on this very old vineyard on the sands of Vinevale came up, um, it kind of added up and it was it was almost too good to be true. So, yeah, diving diving in headfirst to producing your own wine and making those decisions in the vineyard definitely is different to consulting because when you're consulting, you're always considering the best um, outcome for the client and you're always considering their budget and, you know, there's a whole lot of things. But then when it's your own, you can't go – if if you don't have the budget to do an operation, for example, get 20 people in to shoot in the vineyard perfectly, you've got to go, wow, okay, what can I do and how do I implement it to the best of my ability and my budget? Because there's Tony no – mate, right? Sorry? Tony your mates. Yeah, 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 you call them in. Well, they, my mates came and helped at picking time, which was, which was very nice. But, yeah, I think having your own vineyard certainly makes you think a lot more about the decisions that you make. But – I think with all of my clients as well, I, I work very closely with a small group and they're all they're all sub they're sub two hundred tons, like from thirty yeah. to you know, two hundred, it would be the biggest. Um, so I'm intimately involved in all aspects of their business and they trust me with the decisions that I make. And we're we're hand in hand and side by side. So it's it's no different in my own vineyard. I make decisions for the longevity and for the for my business, um, the same as I would for my clients. The final question: you know, Is your business all consuming? You've got these twenty clients. You've got clients in in, in Italy and as well as Spain. Is that all consuming? I mean, do you have time for anything else? I try to make time for for other things. I mean, it is it is a challenge. Viticulture is all consuming because when well, you're constantly driven by the weather. So that's one thing that I'm always on the always on the computer or on the phone. What's the weather doing in um, in Margaret River in Western Australia, or in the Barossa Valley, or Clear Valley, or down in the Tamar in Tasmania? Because I work across ten growing regions wow. across across Australia, and then I've got one eye on on the weather in um, you know in in Rioja and in, in Empordá, and I'm always hearing about what it's doing in South Africa. So. That is all-consuming, and you probably know as well that wine um, or viticulture, you don't choose it, it chooses you, and it is. You, you can't escape it once once you've been bitten by the bug. So, I mean, you've got me at, you know, it's nearly 9.30 p.m. on a Friday night, and I could talk for another four hours. I talk to anyone about viticulture, don't worry. But I do, I do try to find time because I have three young children, and um, we – you know, I love riding my mountain bike and, and hanging out with my family. So it's important to have have barriers, but they're pretty fluid at times. Okay, well, that's fantastic. Listen, I could listen to you for another four hours. There's so many things we didn't discuss. Maybe we do another podcast next year where we do something else. We'll do different aspects of viticulture. Dylan, thank you so much. Oh, I would, I would love to do that. Oh, that'd be great. Okay, it's a date. That's been so much fun. Hope to see you soon in the UK or down under uh, sometime very soon, yeah? All the best. That'll be great. I think I'll come and visit you before you visit me. Sounds good. Maybe in Spain. Oh, even better. <laughs> okay, see you, mate. Thank you. Let's do it, Tim. Thank you. I really could talk to Dylan about viticulture for hours, 
So maybe we'll do another podcast sometime. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the entrepreneur Penny Streeter OBE, owner of Benguela Cove in South Africa and two wineries in England. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.